Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the prophets uh, symbolized by the lighting of the prophet's candle this morning. We see both of your advents, Lord Jesus, here as the text has just been read for us. Your first and second comings, both represented in Isaiah chapter 9. I pray, Father, that you would make us an Advent people, an expectant people. Come now and prepare our hearts. May may every heart prepare him room this morning as we begin on this first Sunday of Advent to open Luke's gospel. Lord, we certainly need your help, and we know that we can count on it because it is is your great desire to uh, empower and equip us to give us the gift of illumination as we open our Bibles uh, to see what's really here in these first four verses of the Gospel of Luke. I pray, Father, that this church would be fortified, uh, fed, and equipped. I pray, Father, that if there are those who do not know you by grace through faith in Jesus, that we may see people move from darkness to light this morning as the Gospel is preached. We pray above all things, Lord Jesus, that you would make yourself known and that we would leave this place knowing that we have met with the King through the preaching of your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I've been waiting for three months to say these words. Would you please turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke? That sounds so good, I'm going to say it again. Would you please turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel according to Luke. And uh, if you don't have a Bible, feel free to grab one of the uh, Bibles that are in front of you in the seat in front of you. Today's text can be found on page 855 in the Red Bibles, 855. The Gospel according to Luke. It's the third book of the New Testament. First Matthew, Mark, and then Luke. I'm not sure that we can do any better to launch this new sermon series than to simply read the first four verses of Luke's gospel. So, would you listen now to the prologue of the gospel according to Luke? Luke chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, page 855 in the Red Bibles. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Friends, the big idea for this particular sermon is also the banner that flies over this entire series, and it's simply this. Our church's mission and vision demand absolute certainty about all that Jesus did and taught. Our church's mission and vision demand absolute certainty about all that Jesus did and taught. Now, as you have heard, especially in verse 4 here, Luke does, not, or Luke does not bury his lead here in verse 4. He's quite clear as to the reason this gospel exists. We read in verse 4, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you've been taught. 
Luke's gospel is distinctive in a number of ways as a New Testament document and even as one of the four gospels, it's distinctive. Um, For example, Luke's gospel is the only one of the four that has a sequel. The sequel to the gospel according to Luke is, anybody know? Acts of the Apostles. This book, Acts, is also addressed to an individual named Theophilus. And so we read in Acts chapter 1, verse 1, In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Did you hear him? In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. You place Luke chapter 1, verse 4, alongside Acts chapter 1, verse 1, and you have the purpose statement behind this entire sermon series. Our church's mission and vision demand absolute certainty about all that Jesus did and taught. Now, clearly Luke's gospel doesn't record every last thing that Jesus did, much less every single word that he spoke. Um, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all have uh, their own material, in some cases completely distinctive to each of their own gospel. None of them are exhaustive in the presentation of the work of the Savior. In fact, in the final sentence of John's gospel, John reminds us in John 21, 25, now there are also many other things that Jesus did. And were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Now that, that's hardly hyperbole. John 21, 25 is simply affirming reality. Jesus and his gospel are a treasure of inexhaustible proportion. No book, no set of books, no library, no planet in the solar system has room enough for the books that would be written to contain all of the word and works of Jesus. And yet, Luke is quite clear in Acts 1-1 that here in his gospel, it's his design to deal with all that Jesus began to do and teach. The the idea is to present a full-orbed and rich exhibition of the work and the words of Jesus. And make no mistake, our church's mission and vision demand absolute certainty about all that Jesus did and taught. The mission of our church is to be and make disciples of Jesus Christ. Our vision, our 2020 vision, is to glorify God as a gospel-centered church family who celebrates and demonstrates and communicates the good news of Jesus Christ among all people. We aim to do that by, over the next three years, baptizing 50 new believers, welcoming 40 covenant members, raising up 30 reproducing leaders, launching 10 community groups, Establishing the Harbor Center for Biblical Counseling with five certified counselors. Commissioning two families for global missions. And planting one church. Think we can do it? Well, not unless we have absolute certainty about all that Jesus did and taught. Apart from whom we can do nothing but with him, through him, in him. We can do all things through him who gives us strength. Well, praise God, that's why Luke wrote his gospel, that we may have certainty concerning all that Jesus did and taught. So this morning is an overview 
of Luke. 1,151 verses boiled down to a single Sunday morning sermon. Now, just by a show of hands, how many were a part of our congregation from the winter of 2005 to the spring of 2006? I'm just curious. Winter of 05 to spring of 06. Okay, a portion of us. A portion of us. I ask that because that was the last time that we were in Luke's gospel together as a church. Now, just for a point of reference, I was still in my 20s at the time. <laughs> and in just a handful of short weeks, I'll be in my 40s. That was a while ago. Last time we studied Luke's gospel as a church, it was the Bush administration, okay? That was a while ago. We were using Palm Pilots and Blackberries. The iPhone was yet to be invented. Twitter and Instagram were not a glimmer in our eyes. Now, from the winter of 05 to the spring of 06, we did study a chunk of Luke's gospel. Not all of it. It was a five-month period, but we took a good leap into it. This time, we're going to take in all 1,151 verses. We are going to leave no stone unturned. I may be in my 50s by the time that we're done with this series. That's an exaggeration, but we're going to take our time. This morning simply serves as the introduction to this book of the Bible. We are going to meet the author. We're going to consider when the book was written and why that matters. We'll take a look at the structure of this gospel. We'll get a sense of the movement of it to get the right kind of confidence in handling Luke's gospel. We'll look at some key themes and applications for today. And then finally, we'll close with four reasons we ought to listen carefully to this man and his gospel. So, in all of that, in the next 30 minutes. Who wrote Luke's gospel? Let's start there. Well, like each of the four gospels, strictly speaking, this one is, is anonymous. I know it says the gospel according to Luke at the top of each of our Bibles, the, the heading for your Bible, but that's an editor's addition to the text. It's, it's not original with Luke's gospel nor any of the four gospels. Each of them um, are, are anonymous. And so if we want to know who the author is, we need to do a little digging. When we do, it becomes very encouraging. Here's, here's what we discover. You'll recall we said that this gospel is the first of a two-part work. second part of this is known as the Acts of the Apostles. And it's clear from the language of both of the books, from the style of both of the books, and even the author's own admission that the same person penned both books. What we find when we read through significant portions of the book of Acts is that the writer of this gospel, whoever he was, was a traveling companion of the Apostle Paul. That's plain from what are known as the we sections of the book of Acts. Namely, Acts 16, 10 to 17, Acts 20, 5 to 15, Acts 21, 1 to 18, and Acts 27, 1 to 28, 16. Now, all those passages are flagged on your sermon outline. Don't feel the need to write them down. The we sections of Acts tell us that this author of this gospel and the author of Acts of the Apostles are one and the same individual. This person was somebody who accompanied Paul on his missionary journeys. Now, that bit of information narrows the field down considerably. Because as we read Acts, as well as Paul's epistles, several of his traveling companions are named. We have Silas, Mark, Timothy, Titus, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke. Well, that may not sound like a very narrow field to you, um, 
when we look to the early church and to their understanding of who wrote this gospel, there is no discussion among these names. One, na- one name emerges and emerges prominently and becomes clearly fixed to the book, and it's the last one, the, the disciple Luke. In Colossians 4.14, Paul calls Luke his beloved physician. The beloved physician. In other words, Luke was a medical doctor. He wasn't just an author of this gospel. There's a centuries-old collect, which is a, a prayer from the Anglican Book of Common Prayer that was composed in 1549. And this prayer is spoken during corporate worship on the feast day of St. Luke the Evangelist, which, evidently, which uh, incidentally was just this past month, October 18th. This prayer is a commentary of sorts on Colossians 4.14, and it prays this, Almighty God, who called Luke the physician to be a physician of the soul, may it please you by the wholesome medicine of his holy doctrine to heal all the diseases of our soul through your Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Isn't that good? I thought so. So may Dr. Luke heal our sin-sick souls this season and the souls of those around us. So Luke was a physician. Um, In Philemon 24, Paul names Luke alongside Mark, Aristarchus, and Demas as a fellow worker. That's the word he uses for Luke. He's a a fellow worker. But if we ever got the idea that Luke was just sort of any fellow worker, um, indistinct among many in Paul's life, we would be mistaken. Luke was incredibly devoted to Paul. He was devoted to him, especially at the point when others weren't. In 2 Timothy, Paul is writing to Timothy what turns out to be the final letter that we have from that man. And Paul writes this in 2 Timothy 4, 9-11. He says, Do your best to come to me soon. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Isn't that beautiful? Those four words, by the way, are the summary of Luke's credentials as a writer of Holy Scripture. Luke alone is with me in prison. So, in this church, we really do believe that Luke is the author of this third gospel, part one of the two-part Luke Acts that bears his name. So, Luke wrote it, but when did he write it? We have a date? Well, we don't have a an exact date, but we have a a pretty good idea, and here's why. Um, The Acts of the Apostles tells the story of the emergence of the early church. From about chapter 9 onward, all of the book of Acts is focused on the ministry and the life of the Apostle Paul. In the final chapter of Acts, Paul finds himself under house arrest in Rome, but he is preaching and he is ministering and so on. Now, historians confirm that Paul met his death during a wave of persecution that would have been um, instigated by the Roman Emperor Nero in the mid-60s A.D. But here's the thing. Paul is still alive and well, preaching and teaching. The Bible says unhindered in in the book of Acts. And it is unthinkable that if Paul had been martyred prior to the completion of the book of Acts, that Luke would not have mentioned that. He already spoke of the martyrdom of James and of Stephen. He would not have missed the martyrdom of Paul. That much is clear. 
So since Luke's gospel is Acts part 1, we know that this book was likely penned in the early 60s A.D. And that's not just interesting, that's important. That means it's only about 30 years after the life of Jesus, which in the first century is a news flash. That doesn't seem like anything to us, and we can get news like that today. But 30 years is not a long period in the ancient world. Therefore, when Luke's work began circulating in the ancient Near East, the ancient Near East was, was crawling with eyewitnesses to the life and death and resurrection and the ascension of Jesus. Now, more on this in a bit, but what this does is remind us that we can have confidence when we read our Bibles. While Luke is not an eyewitness, he was a second-generation believer who no doubt had access to hundreds of eyewitnesses in the first century, and he knew their testimonies. That's what he says here. So Luke wrote this gospel in the early 60s A.D. Now let's take a look at an outline. 1,151 verses. How can we possibly understand them whole? Well, you just stand in awe of this book's editors. That's how. Um, The Holy Spirit, most importantly. Luke, secondarily, the beloved physician. Um really want you to get this. You can get this and understand this whole. Luke has five distinct movements in his gospel. And if you can count to five, if you can remember six words, then you can get this too. Prelude, preparation, public ministry, purpose, passion. That's the outline. Prelude, preparation, public ministry, purpose, and passion. And it's in this section, too, we'll we'll begin to look at some key themes and and applications for today. So first, the the prelude. That's the first two chapters of Luke's gospel. This is where we'll be, Lord willing, during the weeks of Advent over the next month or so. The gospel of Luke begins with the most detailed description we have of the conception and birth and even the early childhood of Jesus. It's it's entirely unique to Luke's gospel, that portion of uh, Jesus as a little boy. And it's in this first movement that we will look at practical matters ranging from waiting on the Lord to how to worship Him. We move then from the prelude to the preparation. In the preparation, that's Luke chapters 3 and 4. We'll study Jesus' baptism. We'll take a look at a genealogy and His temptation by the devil in the desert. Here's where we'll take up such topics as repentance, And of course, what it means to face temptation with your Savior at your side. Then we move from the preparation to his public ministry. It's in this section we begin to see Jesus teaching and healing. And from the very first moment of his ministry, there's opposition. Jesus simply never knew a day where his words or his work didn't encounter significant obstruction or in some cases hostile confrontation. And it's here where Jesus reminds us of Luke's account of the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus says, Woe to you when all people speak well of you. And it's in the middle of his public ministry that Luke takes us to his purpose, Jesus' reason for existence. All of Luke's gospel hinges on Luke chapter 9, verse 51. Luke 9, 51, Luke writes of Jesus, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. So Jesus came for a cross. We see that cross introduced as early as chapter 9, verse 51. 
that cross and its shadow just loom over Luke's gospel, over all of Jesus' teaching, over all of his activity, hovering over all of his teaching on mission and prayer and possessions and peacemaking and divorce and remarriage and sin and temptation. Over all of it is his cross, the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died. And from his purpose, we move to his passion. Passion, as you may know, is a word uh, that comes from the Latin term meaning suffering. So when we speak of the passion of the Christ, it's, it's a reference to his unspeakable, exquisite, and unparalleled sufferings for us, particularly during the final week of his life, culminating in his death on a hill called Golgotha, which means the skull. Now, the good news, of course, is that Jesus not only died in our place, but he was raised for us in the third day. And during this section of his passion, we'll explore not only the sufferings of our Savior, but his glories that follow. Luke outlines the glories of the Savior all over the final chapter of the Gospel of Luke, culminating with the ascension of Jesus into heaven, where he is now seated at the right hand of his Father. Now, the Gospel of Luke also plainly teaches us throughout that Jesus Christ will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. But only those who have been born again by grace through faith in Jesus will know final salvation on that day. Do you know him today? Did you know that you can? If you know yourself to stand in need of God's forgiveness for your sins, today can be the day of salvation for you. Jesus lived a perfect life. It's the life that you cannot nor can I live. And Jesus died a sacrificial sin-bearing death on the cross. It's the death of each of us. We deserve to die because of our sin. Jesus was raised on the third day for all who would ever turn from their sin and place their faith in Jesus. Come to Jesus Christ today. Today can be the day of salvation for you. Turn to him in repentance and faith and become a new creation this morning. Now, with the few minutes that remain today, I'd like to take us back where we began, namely to the first four verses of Luke's gospel. Our church's mission and vision demand absolute certainty about all that Jesus did and taught. So why should we listen to Luke? We can ask it reverently. Why does he deserve our undivided attention for the next year or so? I have four answers to that question drawn from each of the first four verses of the prelude to Luke's gospel. Why should we listen to Luke? Number one. He has contemporary accountability. He has contemporary accountability. In verse 1 he writes, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. Now, it's right here where contemporary unbelievers want to zing Christ followers in the 21st century with the observation that, you know, I've heard that in the first century there were lots of gospels running around and Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are only four of them. People will say Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John weren't the only people writing gospels, you know. I've seen the Da Vinci Code. And Luke says, in effect here in verse 1, I know. They've been essential to my study of the life of our Lord. This first century physician would want to answer the 21st century skeptic that these other accounts of the life of Jesus don't nullify the importance of his gospel. 
they legitimate the existence of it. The Greek word here in verse 1 that the ESV translates inasmuch, it just means since. Since. Since many others have laid pen to paper to do the same thing, you'll know how to evaluate my work. I love this phrase too in verse 1 about the things that have been accomplished among us. The things that have been accomplished among us. That's shorthand for God becoming incarnate through the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, living a sinless life, dying a substitutionary death on the cross, raised bodily on the third day and ascended to heaven and soon to return. (laughs) That's the things that have been accomplished among us in verse 1. Luke knows that this wasn't done in a corner. He's well aware that a number of other folks, in fact, many have already recorded the life of Jesus. This wasn't lost on Luke. But you'll notice he doesn't conclude then that such other other authors have done such fine work that leaves him with nothing to do, without anything to say. Quite the contrary. The fact that there were other gospels, other lives of Christ in circulation around him was not an excuse for him not to write. It was the explanation for why he did write. Luke clearly relied on the gospel of Luke, most scholars will tell you. I think they're right. As did Matthew, likely. And it's clear that Matthew and Luke probably depended upon at least one other mutual source between them. But these realities don't deter Luke as a writer. They make him even more determined as a writer. Why should we listen to Luke? He has contemporary accountability. Second reason. We should listen to Luke because he grounds his work on apostolic foundations. Second reason we ought to listen to Luke. He grounds his work on apostolic foundations. Verse 2 explains what was important to him in terms of the way that he communicates all that Jesus did and taught. Verse 2, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. So here in verse 2, there are two words, namely eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. Now they refer to one group. It's not two different groups, it's one. It's two phases of the work of one group of people. These folks saw Jesus and then they spoke about him. Here then, Luke is indicating that he is among a second generation of Christians, not the first. Luke was not an eyewitness. But it's possible that his parents were first generation believers, or at least his mentors were. And the result of this is nothing short of breathtaking. Luke personally knew people who spent time with our Lord. Luke, as a second-generation believer, is in an incredibly privileged position. What about you? Are you a second-generation believer? Were you raised in a Christian home? Do you have any idea the privilege that is yours? If so, What are you doing with it? What are you doing with your huge advantage in Jesus Christ as a second-generation believer? You know what Luke did? Luke wrote down the life of Jesus in order to strengthen the hand of another fellow believer, individual named Theophilus. So Luke grounds his work on apostolic foundations, but he's also living out the vision of 2 Timothy 2.2, where Paul says to Timothy, which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. That brings us to point three. Why should we listen to Luke? Well, he writes with meticulous composition. 
Luke writes with meticulous composition. Now clearly verse 3 gives us some strong reasons to take Luke seriously as a writer. Verse 3 says, It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. Now, it's here in verse 3 that if you read through them real fast, you're going to miss them. This gives us four reasons to depend on Luke as an author, as a historian. Concerning the life of Jesus, he followed for some time past all things closely. He investigated, number one, from the beginning, number two, looking at everything, number three, carefully. Fourth, those four descriptors are appropriate for Luke. They're more appropriate for Luke than any other gospel writer. His is the longest of the four gospels. It's the most comprehensive of the four gospels. And it's also the only one of the four gospels that has disciple-making woven right into the introduction of it. There's no other gospel like this. This work is dedicated to a man that he calls Theophilus, probably a dignitary of some kind. That phrase, most excellent, is used to speak to governors in the book of Acts. Perhaps he was a person who bankrolled Luke's writing ministry. It's hard to know exactly. We don't know much else about this man other than his name, and his name means loved by God. Theophilus literally means one whom God loves. But the point is this. Luke is writing not merely with meticulous composition. Luke is writing with missional concern. He has disciple-making on his mind. We'll learn from verse 4 that Theophilus is a disciple who's been taught of Christ. Taught, the the word taught there in verse 4 literally means catechized. And here, Luke is clearly demonstrating his heart for mentoring this man. Well, what about you? Are you, a, are you a believer who's growing in your faith? Have you, by God's grace, been taking steps of maturity as you walk with the Lord? Well then, who's your Theophilus? Couldn't you reach out to another believer, perhaps a step or two behind you on the path, and begin to share with them all that you're learning, all that you're becoming in Christ? Of course you could. This book should challenge you. Who is your Theophilus? What are you doing with the gospel? Finally, fourth reason we should listen to Luke, he is controlled by an overriding purpose. He is controlled by an overriding purpose. This is far and away the most important. What's that purpose? Well, verse 4, once again, he tells us what it is. That you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. Now, remember, Theophilus is in all uh, cases a believer. The, The central thrust of this gospel isn't evangelism per se. It's edification. New Testament scholar Daryl Bach says, Luke is not pressing Theophilus for a decision, but for faithfulness. Verse 4 is quite clear. You have been taught. And it's Luke's aim that he might have certainty concerning the things that he had been taught. This is a good question for us as we close. What would be the result? What would be the greatly desired effect of 
as a congregation, all of us growing in a rock-solid certainty of all that Jesus did and taught? The answer to that question is painted across the canvas of the entire book of Acts. Boldness in witness. Power in preaching and in prayer. Sweetness of Christian fellowship. Strength for suffering, particularly through persecution. The transformation of the surrounding community. All of that came on the heels of the overriding purpose that Luke set out to achieve in his gospel, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you've been taught. Clarity breeds conviction, and conviction breeds wild disciples of Jesus, the kind that has a 2020 vision. Well, our church's mission and vision demand absolute certainty about all that Jesus did and taught. Our mission is to be and make disciples of Jesus. Now think about it. Our 2020 vision includes these goals regarding baptisms, covenant membership, raising up reproducing leaders, launching community groups, beginning the Harbor Center for Biblical Counseling, uh, sending out global missionaries, and in three years' time, planting a church. God helping us as we look toward the future we are going to learn from the ground up all that Jesus began to do and teach. And he promises us that as we do, he will make us become fishers of men. The Advent season is known as the season of expectation. Are you expectant about what God might do in your life, in our church over this next season and on into this next year? What are you anticipating that God might be pleased to do among us in 2017? Are you prepared for what God may have in store for us as we study the Gospel of Luke? Let us remember that the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. As His Word goes out from His mouth, it will accomplish His purposes. It will succeed in the thing for which He sent it. Who's looking forward to what God will do in our church through the gospel of Luke? Me too. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. Lord, we recognize in a moment like this the extraordinary privilege it is for us to open Holy Scripture, to get a better grasp of the person and work of Jesus in our lives. Lord, this is not just ancient history. This is, this is contemporary reality that we may have certainty concerning all that Jesus did and taught. Lord, propel our mission forward in 2017, the 500th year anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. May this be an extraordinary year of both deep and abiding health in this church and forward-looking, exciting growth. Lord, we will concentrate on our depth as a congregation. As we do, would you take care of our breadth and our width? In Jesus' name, amen.